Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are listening to Rated LGBT Radio, and this is our latest installment. We are pleased to have you, and as always, we have a really intriguing and interesting show, and I think today a really important one uh, for your perusal. Um, Today, we are going to be talking to uh, Ron Goldberg. Ron is the author of an upcoming book called The Boy with the Bullhorn, and it is a memoir of the history of Act Up New York. Um, It is a really... Um, it's a really good book to read. I mean, it's uh, full of um, kind of personal anecdotes and and um, coming-of-age story folded in with the timeline and history of the development of ACT UP. And I think it's, the lessons from this book are not only important from a historical perspective, because I think a lot of uh, younger LGBTQ people are really becoming unaware of the whole um, AIDS crisis legacy. Um, But also, I think there are some really pertinent learning elements to this in terms of today's activism and what is needed. Um, So the the book, uh, like I said, is a chronological history of um, ACT UP and the AIDS, which stood for the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, um, and ACT UP was one of the first um, activist organizations for LGBTQ people that got more in your face and angry and um, really breaking through kind of our almost overly polite um, Stonewall riots notwithstanding um, behavior as, as an activist um, uh, community. Um, and it was in a time when we almost had to do that because we had people dying. It was not a matter of just we wanted to live our lives with equality. It was life or death. And um, the stories of the organization are fascinating. Um, Ron himself is a writer and activist. Uh, His articles have appeared in Outweek um, and Paws Magazine, Central Park, and the um, Visual AIDS blog. Um, he is a research. He's been a research associate associate for filmmaker uh, David France on the um, the book How to Survive a Plague. Um, and he speaks often at high schools and colleges about the history of AIDS and the lessons and the legacy of ACT UP. Um, I do want to read one excerpt from the book. This is from a speech by uh, one of the founding members of ACT UP who is no longer with us. But I, I think this is a, was an interesting commentary um, and will kind of frame our discussion today. Um, and I think it speaks to the experience of the time. Living with AIDS in this country is like living in the twilight zone. Living with AIDS is like living through a war which is happening only for those people who are in the trenches. 
Every time a shell explodes, you look around to discover that you lost more of your friends, but nobody else notices. It isn't happening to them. They're walking the streets as though we weren't living through some sort of nightmare, and only you can hear the screams of the people who are dying and their cries for help. No one else seems to be noticing. Someday the AIDS crisis will be over. Remember that. And when that day comes, when that day has come and gone, there'll be people alive on this earth, gay people and straight people, men and women, black and white, who will hear the story that once there was a terrible disease in this country and all over the world, and that a brave group of people stood up and fought and in some cases gave their lives so that other people might live and be free. And um, I know that speaks to my experience of the time um, through the worst of the AIDS crisis. And I think in some ways, if we look at today and what's happening with the persecution of transgender people, I think we are in another situation where um, that is the case. So um, Ron is waiting on deck. We were going to bring him on in just a minute. But before that, I would like to bring on Brody Levesque, the uh, illustrious co-host of the show and the editor of the Los Angeles Blade, uh, with a quick news update. Brody, welcome to the show. Hi, Rob. Good afternoon to our listeners. We thank you for listening and your subscription to our little corner of the universe. Um, the conservative conversation for a narrative for the last few months has been about parental rights. And it's a disingenuous uh, subject matter because it's under the guise of parental rights that Florida and a few other states have enacted laws, including Florida's onerous don't say gay law. Um, and in the, in the back and forth of that conversation, there's been battles obviously with your progressives, including even battles with, for example, the Walt Disney Corporation. But Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, who has been the leading force behind a good deal of this uh, vitriol and rhetoric, that quite frankly, is hateful, has a press secretary, uh, Christina Peshaw, who is probably even more anti-LGBTQ than the governor. And she, in a series of tweets, labeled uh, people that were opposed this don't say gay law and other bills that would trespass upon parental rights uh, in the old hateful terms of groomers and and basically implying that the LGBTQ community is filled with uh, pedophiles and and people grooming and that sort of thing, child abuses. Uh, Well, that has now been taken even farther. Moms for Liberty, which is a right-wing conservative group, uh, Florida-based and founded, no shock there, uh, has put out a series of tweets attacking the Trevor Project, which is the nation's largest uh, organization uh, for uh, hotlines and resources to fight LGBTQ suicide, and essentially is now accusing the Trevor Project of being part of the cabal of groomers and pedophiles and, of course, that narrative has now been picked up by the far right, and away we go. I spoke with the Trevor Project this morning. Uh, they are declining to directly address this. In a tweet earlier, Moms for Liberty put out, 
Why is the At Trevor Project encouraging children to keep secrets from their parents, which was then picked up by a really off-the-wall anti-gay website, Quillette, which is also a QAnon aficionado, and, of course, they dragged it right into the grooming and predatory, uh, you know, pedophile, um, you know, arena of discussion and discourse. The problem, though, is that <clears throat> this isn't limited to the far right. I had a conversation this morning with a member of the U.S. House, and the member of the U.S. House was highly annoyed because members of the Republican caucus, including your usual suspects of QAnon aficionados and crazies, but also others within the party, who you normally wouldn't expect of that, um, are starting to pick up on this, you know, meme and mantra established by Florida Governor's Press Secretary Bushaw. The LGBTQ community is nothing more than, you know, groomers. And now, of course, they've turned their focus on the Trevor Project. Um, this member of the House is incensed by this, and I've reached out to a few lawmakers in some other states to kind of get, um, you know, kind of get their, you know, backing on it, uh, you know, where they're at with it. But some of the conservative pundits who unfortunately are not all the way up to the far right and are listened to in respect to conservative circles are also tweeting out things such as, Left-wing activists are predatory groomers. If you sit around designing and promoting ways to get in touch with kids so you can discuss sexuality and keep it from their parents, you are a groomer. And this has become extremely, extremely problematic. And it is adding more fuel to the fire. I mean, this year alone, uh, we've had over 300 pieces of anti-LGBTQ legislation passed in 31 states. 300 of them. That's a lot. And yeah. it's considerably up from last year. The last two years alone, the LGBTQ community, especially the trans community, has been under attack well over 700 different pieces of legislation. And it continues. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp today signed into law two bills that also directly attack the community. One, again, targets the trans youth athletes barring them from sports, and then the other one bans, in quotation marks, offensive books. Well, the Moms for Liberty, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, that's how they came into existence, was because they didn't like LGBTQ books in libraries and schools, and they formed chapters all over the place, and now they are in about 28 states, these chapters are, and they are going to school boards and libraries and trying to get these books banned. And this is how it goes. Um, And again, now that they've gone after the Trevor Project, you know, here we go with targeting. The thing that they were annoyed about, apparently, um, if you are on the Trevor Project's website on either a mobile device or your computer, there's a button there that stays with you visible that if someone comes into the room and you may not be out to them, such as your parents, you hit the button and the screen switches immediately to something else. Okay, well, you know, that's exactly what Monster Liberty and these conservatives are just railing about. You know, oh my God. Um, and so we're, we're, we're really 
spreading out from one series of fights and battles with the trans community to now the entire cultural war has now shifted back uh, with focus on the entire community. And, of course, underlying all of this is that there are some decisions coming from the U.S. Supreme Court that literally puts a lot of gains for the gay community at extreme risk. And uh, there's a lot of people, you know, raising flags and sounding the alarm uh, on exactly just how bad bad will get. And it's just kind of a repeat of really bad history. So that was pretty much what most of my morning yeah. has been revolving right. around. And there is, I understand that I remember reading something about the attack on the Trevor project, that there's a comic book that the treasure Trevor project uh, has out that is, part of this focus and I forget what the subject exactly of that comic book is but um, I believe that was one of the things they were mentioning too um, oh it's what triggered them that comic book the comic the, the little comic strip directly addresses the quick exit feature of the travel project browser okay well it, so that's it exactly kind of ir- what it is yeah it's kind of ironic because um, uh, we're going to bring Ron on, but there was there's some direct parallels to a lot of this um, to what um, was experienced um, back in the fight in the AIDS crisis. So um, uh, we will get into that, and um, one of those stories involved actually a comic book. Ron, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for everything you've done. Um, historically in your fight um, for decades and um, for putting it all together in a book. Um, what, what inspired you to, to write the book now? Um, <laughs> well, actually, it isn't, isn't so much now. I actually started to write it uh, when I was sort of edging my way out of ACT UP in, in like the 90s, uh, 1990s, <laughs> because I was uh, – trying to figure out just like what the hell just happened. It was just this overwhelming experience. And I was very, I knew from the, almost from the moment I joined the group, which was just a couple of months after it started in 1987, that I was a part of something that was historic. And that I just got this really sense of like, my job is to, is to, to write this down, to, to put it all, you know, in, in, in place. Um, and, you know, I wrote the book, I wrote, stuff in the 90s, put it aside, and then um, actually I was turning 50, and I was sort of, all my job was like making money for lawyers, which wasn't somehow fulfilling. Um, So I was like, what's important? This book is important. And I've been working on it, you know, pretty steadily ever since. Um, What's astonishing, and particularly listening to, you know, what we were just listening to is how much of this is exactly what we went through you know the names have changed what was targeted as oh being politically correct which was anything where you were right. trying to address either through language or behavior you know societal wrongs that was politically correct that's woke now again the right you know sort of weaponizes these terms um you know parental rights is just family values in a different dress it's you know it's um you know and the comic book, that's amazing because... I know, isn't that amazing? How, I, yeah. 
<laughs> Jesse Helms stood on the floor of the Senate. It was, it was two days or the day after, uh, two days after the March on Washington in 1987. You know, half a million, you know, queers come to Washington and the quilt is laid out for the first time, the AIDS quilt. And then there's a, a CD at the Supreme Court to protest the Hardwick decision, which had, you know, kept sodomy laws on the books. Um, and like two days later, Jesse Helms is standing up, you know, uh, on the Senate floor holding up the GMHC safe sex comic book going, if the American public could see this, you know, they would throw up. And he got the Senate to pass a bill uh, 96 to 2, basically banning any safe sex education that promotes or condones homosexuality. And it passed yeah. 96 to 2. Right, yeah, and that that was when um, Brody was talking about the Trevor Project, you know, it's like, and I knew you would pick up on that, you know, because, <laughs> and that's why I wanted to emphasize that it was a comic um, that the Trevor Project had out that was spurring this, and it's like, you know, it was like, oh my God, it's like it's totally history repeating itself. The other point you make in the book about that vote was a lot of that 96 number were made up of people who later became allies, but at the time were not, um, including well, Joe Biden. Well, they ostensibly were allies. You know, they wound, you know, that even then they were, you know, quote unquote allies, but to what extent, right? Um, right. And, and this is the, I mean, this is also one of the lessons is you've got to keep feet to the fire. You've got to, um, you know, promises are lovely. Um, but, you know, you need, you need to keep on, you know, at, at these people so that, that the po only political choice is the right choice. <laughs> so it can be the right yeah, choice, but no. if it's not good for them politically, not going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I want to take you back a few steps, though, in the book um, to when you first started out um, and, mm -hmm. and were kind of getting involved and, probably not even quite sure what you were getting into. And you had a really interesting account of the first time you met somebody with um, um, Carposi, with KS. Yeah. And what was your reaction and, and, and how did that impact you? Okay, so um, I decided to go to my ACT UP had had this in 1987, this, that Gay Pride had, you know, un, had come up with this concentration camp float the Gay Pride Parade, which was all about, um, you know, all these laws that were coming down the pike about mandatory testing and quarantine and, and all these sort of threats. So there's this very dramatic thing. And I was like, wow, you know, I, I've got to be a part of this. And I decided to go two days later, they had a demonstration. And, you know, I was skipping out. I was temping at the time and I skipped out at lunch and, you know, put on my silent people's death button and, you know, I'm not really going to get involved. Um, and I sort of was watching, and I saw this guy across the way. His name is Mark Fotopoulos. And he's actually one of the reasons I wrote this book, because he's, he's someone, he's a, an unsung hero. He was holding up this sign that said, you know, living with AIDS, two years, two months, no thanks to you, Mr. Reagan. And the idea, I mean, I was sort of, nervous about even being in a park at an AIDS demonstration. And here was this guy, good looking. I mean, he's 
you know, didn't look sick. You know, the image of, of people with AIDS at the time was like, oh, they were all, you know, in hospital beds, hunched over. And, and here was this guy proclaiming in the middle of downtown Manhattan that he had AIDS. And, and then he, you know, we left the park and marched around and then he was, you know, going off and getting arrested. And um, I got close to him and I saw that he had, you know, KS lesions, these, you know, purple lesions on his face, which was covered up with makeup. But he was still proclaiming with these other protesters who were on the, you know, getting arrested, that their lives as gay men mattered and that, you know, the government had a responsibility to take care of them and to proclaim, you know, their rights in downtown Manhattan. And I was really sort of stunned by it because it was not how I pictured people with AIDS. And, and then I had this weird moment where I'm like running back to work and I'm like suddenly very nervous wearing this silence equals death button, which had, which was black, which had the pink triangle and silence equals death. And it was suddenly like for someone who considered himself out and proud to suddenly be like, well, maybe I don't want to wear that on my shirt. Maybe, you know, maybe they think I have AIDS. Maybe, why should everyone know I'm gay? It just sort of cascaded this question to me um, about, you know, who I was and what it was that I thought was, you know, were my rights. Uh, it was really amazing. And Mark became a friend and his, he would flip, he would change the dates for years. He, he didn't die until, I want to say 1991, uh, 1990, 1990, 90, maybe um, 90 or 91. So several years later, so he was a long-term survivor at the time. Right. But, you know, amazing. Yeah, that's one thing I want to point out in the book that, that you do that is super effective is, is you introduce people and you talk about what they're doing and friends of yours and relationships of yours. And then it, as things go on in the timelines, you, you mark the point at which these different individuals passed away. So you, you, it's like as you're reading the book, you get this real, real-time feel for what that aspect was like where it's like these people that you're working with, like I don't know of any other timeline that, you know, like of an organization where it's like I work with this group, I work with this group, and by the way, oh, they, and two of them passed away at this time, and then two of them passed away at this time. It's like just really um, specific to what, what that experience was. Um, in the book, you, and this drew a parallel for me of, the Trump administration and, you know, the nonsense that they were doing with different commissions uh, where the, the commissions were um, uh, counter to what they were supposedly set out to do. But the Reagan administration had set up a presidential uh, commission on HIV. And, um, you know, tell us about that, about what that initial commission was like. So the, the, there were several. There were several commissions. The first commission was Reagan Commission, um, and when they announced it initially, it was going to be we have experts and all these. You know, you know, it's going to be this scientific commission. And when it was finally announced in the summer of uh, 1987, it was you know lunatics. You know, it was. <laughs> I mean, there was you know there was someone who was like, you can get AIDS from mosquitoes and and in swimming pools and. 
you know, there was someone else who was giving out, you know, three tests and, you know, uh, AIDS tests. And, you know, it was patriotic to be negative. I mean, it was just, and Cardinal O'Connor, who was a huge, huge enemy of the gay, uh, gay community, particularly, you know, in New York, but also nationwide, you know, was also named to this commission. And the one, the one controversial person named was someone who um, was on the, it was a gay doctor who was on the board of GMHC. He was on, um, he'd been on a panel uh, from the Institutes of Medicine uh, about HIV. So he was actually the one person who had any sort of connection to HIV in real life. And he was the one, he was setting a bad example for our youth for having this guy on the, uh, on the commission. Um, and uh, it was, it was sort of, you know, we knew we had to disrupt. Um, and we went down, um, we decided we would go down. We took two buses and we went down to Washington for the first day of hearings. Um, and we had a protest outside. And we also had people who were testifying at when, at when the public was allowed to speak uh, in the afternoon. And what we were able to do um, is frame the coverage in a different way. They had to cover what was going on outside and what was being said inside. So it, it colored how the commission was viewed. There was also some really good reporting, particularly from, uh, I think, Sandra Budman in the, in the Washington Post, who just laid out who all these people were and, you know, that they had not only were they, unqual- you know, unqualified, they also had these completely off-the-wall opinions. Um, and there was turnover in the commission. But what we did is we had Bill Ballman, who was one of our members, um, was at every meeting and was, became a pipeline to feed the commission information. Um, and what started to happen, there was some uh, shifts in personnel, and, but what started to happen is what was coming out from the commission initial reports was sounding a lot more act up fact sheets than it was what Reagan expected. And it was by both having this inside and outside strategy. We had people you know, feeding them information we also had people outside protesting, and, and they worked, you know, symbiotically so that by the time we got to the final report, it was not at all what the Reagan administration wanted, which was, you know, uh, you know a stamp of approval for, you know, testing, universal testing and quarantine and mandatory testing and all these other things. It didn't have any of that. And um, I, I think it was, it was one of our first, Victories, And it was controversial because, you know, were we actually changing people's lives? I mean, was, was the commission just all for show? But the commission became right. the bottom line for everything that followed. All the you know, politicians would go, well, the commission report said this. It became the foundation. And because it sounded so much like what we were saying, it also sort of raised our own you know, sense of expertise, you know, to the general public and to the, to the media particularly. Right, and and that is a theme that kind of goes through the book of the, the relationship um, between ACT UP and the media, and um, you know some failures and successes in in that in that uh, regard. But I want to go back also to what was what do you feel is the impetus that 
made act up so, such an activist organization much more so than anything else that the LGBTQ um, community had done up to that point. I mean, it was, you know, it's actually, like, I, go ahead. I actually take exception to that because I think uh, certainly uh, GLF and GAA, which is the Gay Liberation Front and the Gay Activist Alliance, right after post-Stonewall, were very much, you know, activist groups. Um, at one point, actually, for the Stonewall 20, we had a study group um, that we did an act up, and a number of us were going back and reading history of Mattachine and Doris of Belitis and all the, you know, the predecessor activist groups. And I was astonished by how much ACT UP was, you know, similar, both in terms of tactics and also in terms of enemies, which was incredible, right. which is the same thing that's happening now to these old, right. older groups. Um, and we had members of those groups, you know, in ACT UP. Marty Robinson, who's one of the leaders of GAA, you know, actually brought the whole concept of the ZAP you know, these actions which are direct, you know, small, you know, right at people's faces, the people who you're trying to influence, boom, you show up, you're there, um, those kind of actions. You know, he brought that to ACT UP. But it was also ACT UP, took, you know, was six, six years into the AIDS crisis. I mean, if we count right. 1981 as the beginning of the crisis, uh, even though we know AIDS was, was around before then now, um, Initially, the response, the activist response was, no one's doing anything. We have to take care of our own. And that was, that was GMHC. That was Shanti Project. There was all these different groups that showed up. Um, PWA empowerment groups started. Uh, People with AIDS is what PWA is. Um, right. you know, and they started. But then there's a moment, and we just hit it. I mean, there was just a moment when the community was ready to, to fight. I mean, certainly Larry Kramer, uh, you know, was a big, big proponent of that. Um, but he was, you know, he lit, he may have lit the match, but the fuse was already there. You know, it was, right. uh, there were already groups that were doing stuff and act up just was able to, to just seize that moment because we were a generation, my generation of gay men, were we weren't sick yet i was in my late 20s um it was still happening during the during the early 80s mid 80s in my head at least it was happening to the generation like seven years above me you know there was guys in their 30s we weren't 30 yet um you know and my generation the reason why these deaths show up like they do in my book is because this was the generation of people who had azt who had initial you know, some of the prophylactic drugs. Um, right. So, you know, it, and we just, there was, it was a wave. I mean, I remember vividly the moment we realized it was the March on Washington down in, in D.C. in 1987. It was, they had the AIDS quilt spread out. Um, act up, we had like 200 people, you know, who came down for the march. And by the end of the weekend, Everybody was wearing silence equals death buttons. Everyone was wearing T-shirt. And suddenly it was like, oh, my God, this is, this is going to move. This is going to be right. – you, know, you, you went down there, right. a young, feisty group. You're coming back a movement. I mean, there was also other groups that were starting, and we actually had a big meeting of, of a lot of other AIDS activist groups that were just starting that weekend. So it, it was the perfect timing for that. Yeah, no, I, and I think that's fair because uh, I know my purview on it because I was in Los Angeles 
through that that whole arc of time. And it was the early 80s was very much everybody kind of in shock and doing mm-hmm. everything we could. And um, and we had the LaRoche Initiative that we were fighting. That was the first political right. thing I got involved in to fight, which was so outrageous, you know, uh, you know, to think that we had to actually go fight something like that. Um, but then um, when ACT UP appeared in L.A., it was, to your point, like finally somebody standing up to this stuff, you know, somebody mm-hmm. actually, you know, you know, acting back out at it. And, you know, ACT UP was just so such a pertinent name because it was like, no, we're not going to sit around and take this anymore. Um, you know, because right. it was just outrageous behavior. Um, I want to go back to the media thing, though, because um, one thing that comes out in the book um, throughout is kind of this very weird um, behavior by the New York Times, which, you know, lately, you know, in the last few years, you know, the New York Times has been the champion of, you know, progression. um, But then there was real mixed bag. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I mean, sort of famously, the New York Times, you know, there's a comparison, I think, uh, you know, Larry has it, Larry Kramer has it uh, in the beginning of The Normal Heart, where he basically talks about, you know, uh, the, the, the Tylenol scare or Legionnaire's disease, actually, I think it is, where there was like, you know, maybe a dozen deaths and, you know, front page stories and whatever. And it took like three years for, for AIDS to make it to the front page. And, and the coverage of the Times, we had, there was a, a man, the managing editor, A.M. Rosenthal, who refused to allow the term gay in the paper until 1987, uh, unless it was the name of an organization. We were homosexuals. Um, and the, it, the idea was, and Vito speaks to that in the, in the piece you read, which is that, you know, it's not about presumption was that that the times and the people who read the times were not really were not gay <laughs> they were not they, it was, they were not our people i mean they would put out right. these editorials that were like don't panic yet over aids like and this is in 19 like 87 don't panic you like we don't panic yet well and the reason like, was well because the gays are you know the gays are taking care of themselves and the IV drug users as well. Um, um, yeah, well, um, and but but you know we, dear reader, we're we're cool. We don't have to worry. It's not happening to us. Uh, not our class, dear. And um, that sort of persisted. These editorials went on for years. Uh, and the Times also most famously published um, the William F. Buckley op-ed in 1986. Oh my God! Yeah. Which you know which said that that. You know, for prevention matters, uh, people with AIDS should be tattooed, um, you know, gay men on their buttocks and IV drug users on their arms. And, you know, uh, <laughs> what could possibly be wrong with that, dear reader? Um, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> so the Times took a while. I mean, we had protests at the Times. We, we, took them on directly. They had science. Um, again, it was a back and forth because, you know, you still, we still ran ads, big controversial ads in the Times. 
you know, even though we had real issues with Gina Colada, who was the leading, you know, science reporter for a good portion of that time and with crazy articles, which we would then, you know, react to, we still fed her information. Um, But it's sort of what Ann Northrup, another one of our actors, had a lot of real um, hidden, (laughs) hidden talent. Um, People who, you know, we were very fortunate being in New York. We had people who handled media, who were in the media, who knew how to do things. And she always says you talk through the media to get to where you want. It's not about pleasing the media or what they want. It's like, what do you want? And you send your message through the media to your target. And that's what we were able to do. Um, right. But it was, it was a dance. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And then uh, you also have a, a piece where ACT UP um, went up against uh, Cosmopolitan magazine for their, oh, yeah. their take on, on uh, women with uh, HIV. Yeah, that was, uh, that was like in at the beginning of 1988, and that was actually the beginning, um, one of the first, the first demonstrations that our, our Women Caucus had put together and later became a, a committee. Um, often when you read the story of ACT UP or you hear about ACT UP, the image is, you know, a bunch of gay white men. And uh, I think... Sarah Schulman's book talks about this a lot. I think I talk about it too. It's the incredible role uh, the women in ACT UP played. And um, both in terms of them, for the most part, having more political experience. So they really taught us, a lot of us uh, who were were just sort of joining and becoming political. Um, But in this particular instance, uh, Cosmo published this article that basically had this doctor saying that, you know, straight women can't get AIDS. Uh, and people who say, straight men, women who say they got AIDS through regular sex, well, they're lying. And people, you know, in Africa, we know there's a lot of it, but that's because, because uh, sex there is so brutal that it's really kind of closer to rape. I mean, <laughs> that kind of thing. Insane. Um, yeah. So we, um, we actually... Uh, they got in touch with Cosmo. They tried to, they had a meeting with them and Cosmo was like, uh, we, you know, it's not our fault. Talk to the doctor. And they gave the doctor, they gave them the doctor's phone number. They called up, they had a meeting with the doctor, which they filmed and later became a video that became a, sort of a, one of the early videos about like how to do an action, a doctor's liars. And I'm going to forget the third thing, but it was a, a video of, of the action and their conversation. And then they did this big action outside of Cosmo, which sort of became this media storm. And suddenly it became this thing that was on the, the afternoon talk shows. And it, it went on to Nightline, which was the big show at the time in the evening. Um, and, and it became this event. Everyone wanted to talk about it. And what, what eventually happened is Cosmo wound up writing another article several months later talking about real risks of, of, okay. of uh, you know, of AIDS. Um, so yeah, wild, wild. Yeah. was not a right-wing doctor. He was actually, um, his reasoning was he didn't, you know, he came from the sexual revolution and didn't want to, you know, women to lose their, uh, you know, the sense that, that sex was good and sex was positive and, you know, but like, but ignore this disease that could kill you. It's not really the right strategy. <laughs> you know, seriously. Um, and then uh, one uh, the 
that you go into detail on, and, which is uh, completely right. Um, and uh, I think for a lot of people, when they think of ACT UP, if they know about ACT UP, um, this is one that event that probably comes to mind, is the protest at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Um, yeah. Tell us what happened there. So stop the church. Um, <laughs> I mean, that sort of became uh, certainly our most notorious action and our biggest one. I mean, we never had more people than we had at Stop the Church. And I think it was, uh, I want to say it was like maybe 5,000 people, which also gives you a sense of, of any time you hear like, oh, ACT UP was this huge thing. It's like, no, it wasn't. I mean, it was, which is another story about ACT UP, which is that a small group of people can make change happen. That's a, a message. But um, so uh, there were people, Cardinal O'Connor had been this outspoken critic of, of gay rights. He fought to make sure that New York City didn't pass a gay rights law, which he eventually lost. Um, and he was uh, you know, very much against uh, you know, any safe sex education, condom distribution, mm-hmm. um, you know, in schools. He was, you know, made sure that there was no edu- AIDS education in school. Um, and it was time to, to take him on. He had stepped into the political ring um, very much, more so than, than previous, you know, cardinals. Um, so ACTUP decided to take him on, and we uh, reached out to uh, WAM, which was the Women's Health Activist Mobilization, which was a, a, a pro-choice, pro-abortion group, also invested in, in, in direct action. And we did a joint action to, um, you know, protest the church and Cardinal O'Connor on his stand, the stance against, you know, choice, against abortion rights, and um, against AIDS education. Um, and there was an outside demonstration, which was huge. And then there were affinity groups, which is how we sort of organized when there was going to be a, a civil disobedience and arrest action. Uh, you would get smaller groups that would work together and have their own sort of support network and decide what they were going to do. And uh, it had been, there was a lot of controversy, even within the organization, within ACT UP, about going inside and disrupting a service. Um, A lot of people felt that that was inappropriate, that um, tactically you were attacking the cardinal where he had the most legitimacy, uh, but also the idea of disrupting a service was was really, um, I know for myself, um, you know, as a Jewish kid, uh, images of disrupting, you know, synagogues and that sort of thing was, was very much uh, a knee-jerk response for me. I was like, no, uh, this, is, this is wrong. Um, we were told, and uh, the plan was that the action inside was going to be a silent protest. It would only happen during um, uh, the sermon, the, whatever, the homily, I guess. Um, it shows you how much I know about Catholic services. <laughs> um, you know, and that there was going to be a silent protest. Well... The church had, you know, of course, gotten wind of this. We'd actually done outreach the week before telling the, the congregants that this was going to happen and this is going to be, this is why. And um, so he had the police were all over the place and bomb sniffing dogs and, you know, a whole scene. And Ed Koch, the mayor, was there and the police commissioner. And 
Uh, one of our members, <laughs> uh, Michael Petrellis, um, you know, started, got up on the pew and started screaming. And, you know, you're killing us and blowing his whistle. And it just sort of devolved from there. And so there was this disruption in the cathedral, which also at some point uh, one of our members went up and uh, he was supposed to refuse the wafer. That was what his affinity group was supposed to, had said they were going to do. But out of habit, he took the wafer and then he had it in his hand and so he crumpled it. And that caused, that became, you know, that became the story. Uh, and, right. um, and it's interesting. I, you know, I, it became this, you know, cause celeb, the, the church, you know, whipped our ass in terms of how they handled the media. I mean, it was, we were, we, <laughs> they had it, um, you know, but they're pros at it, right? That's what they do. Um, right. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so we had our head handed to us and, um, you know, there was a lot of people going, you know, in the community who also had to speak out against us. And it was like, well, of course they do. If we're playing bad cop, they have to play good cop. But at the end of the day, I mean, it made us notorious. I think it probably also got us more FBI attention and more police attention. But it also you know, made us more of a threat. Right. Maybe tactically it wound up being successful. I personally think what went on inside the church was still wrong. Uh, and I'm, I think I'm in a minority there and may get it from some of my friends. <laughs> but um, there's, no, there's no doubt that that action changed our profile. And part of it is, you know, yes, let's negotiate with these other people because who knows what these crazies are going to do. And also, wow, they're serious. And the, re- and the reality is the church lost a lot of its it became okay to question the church's stance on a lot of things as long as you didn't, you know, lay down in the aisles or, you know, crush, crush a wafer. We created space where suddenly you could criticize the church and O'Connor. And plus, Koch was leaving office. He was, you know, besties with, with O'Connor. And Dinkins, who was coming in, was not dependent on the same, you know, uh, constituency. Um, so the influence of the church actually diminished after that demonstration. And I'm sure part of it is because of what we, the space we were able to create to criticize. Yeah, no, I think, I think, um, cause I can see how people, especially there on the ground and you guys right there while it was happening, it's like, Oh my God, this is, <laughs> this is off the rails and this is going to look bad and, and all that. And, and probably in a short term PR sense, it, it looked rude and, and, and bad, but legacy wise, I think it is what people remember about ACT UP. And I think it was necessary. I think that kind of disturbance, um, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's a, it's a weird paradox is like the things with civil disobedience are, you know, they make people mad but they wake them up, you know, so that yeah. they get that there's an issue behind it, you know, and um, yeah. so it's like you get you get slapped back, but at the same time you've had an impact. So it's um, you know that it, it is a tough one, but uh, yeah. yeah so I mean, Martin Luther King talked account. about the 
yeah, Martin Luther King talks about the tension. You know, part of what civil disobedience does is it raises these issues by creating this crisis, this tension. It raises these issues and brings them out into the sun, you know, where they can hopefully shrivel. Um, you know, they, right. yeah. I mean, that is the role. I mean, and the other thing is, look, the role of a street activist is, you know, it's not to ask for what's possible. It's to, it's to demand what's necessary. And that, you know, you are not going to be loved. I mean, there was a strange, I mean, it's very funny because Larry was the perfect example of this. Larry would like scream, you're Hitler, you're Hitler. And then why don't you like me? It's like, no. <laughs> if you're going to, you know, if you're going to do these kind of things, you're not going to be loved. It's not your job to be loved. Right. Um, and right. you have to embrace that. And, uh, you know, if you're going to run, if that's your role, you have to be willing to, to go there. Yeah. And I think that's some of the message that today's activists need to kind of look at, because I think we've gotten complacent. I think that, you know, a lot of people, you know, marriage equality got passed by the Supreme Court and it was like, oh, done, done, yay. In fact, I remember at Pride in 2016, before the election, um, you know, I was talking to a friend and he was saying how, you know, I think Pride is kind of a nostalgic thing now. You know, we come <laughs> together just to remember the fights we used to have. And, you know, it's like, and that was, you know, the, this little eye of the storm before we went back into it. And now, you know, as we talked about at the top of the hour, you know, how we're, we're in a fight again and are people ready to wake up and fight back as hard as they need to? Um, because, this, you know, yeah. to your point before, history is repeating itself. Yeah, and I mean, I think the other lesson is, is that it's, you know, there's that, you know, first they came for the trans folk and I didn't fight because it wasn't, there's, this is coalition work. Uh, it's not just mm-hmm. because it's not just happening to the gays. I mean, we're, we're stripping voting rights where, I mean, there's a lot of people and a lot of, of different communities that are being affected. Um, you know, gays are a convenient boogeyman. Um, you know, uh, and I say gays, of course, I mean, you know, LGBTQ plus, mm-hmm. um, but, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, rights have to be, you know, constantly guarded and and fought um, for. Uh, I think we're at. Um, I mean, I'm sort of terrified about where we are at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. uh, also, because I mean, it's one thing to look at ACT UP and what we were able to do, but it was also we were of a time. Um, I think some of the strategies hold up, but how they're applied has to be different. We're in a different media world. We're in a different, mm-hmm. we consume information differently. Uh, I mean, a lot of what we did, you know, certainly within New York was we, you know, we were always, it wasn't just bodies in the streets. I mean, we had posters that were up just like all over town all the time. And so it, it, it created this environment of like, oh, AIDS is a political issue, which was news because, AIDS was a, was a health issue, it was a medical issue, it was a, but no, it was a political issue because the AIDS crisis was allowed to happen. 
because of who it was happening to. And that was convenient for the people who, you know, for those people who were always going to be against it. Um, right. You know, there are, and even within ACT UP, it's not, we weren't just in the streets. We were at meetings. We were, we, you know, did ad campaigns. We did, you know, we, co- we did coalition work. We did court. I mean, there was a famous case that came out, uh, actually was done before us, but we became a part of it, um, uh, a civil lawsuit that uh, the CDC was not recognizing diseases that were affecting women um, as, being, as being AIDS-related. It was killing them. People, women were dying from AIDS. They just you know, weren't classified as having AIDS. So they couldn't get their right. benefits. They weren't getting – and there was a civil lawsuit. I mean, we went through the courts and did it. Needle exchange also was another thing where we were, uh, had a group that was doing exchanging clean needles for, you know, used needles on the street, which was part of a harm reduction strategy because of, of AIDS in the IV drug using communities where, you know, people were using um, old needles and getting infected as they passed it from one person to the next. And that also went through the courts. There are a lot of different strategies of how to take, of what direct action means. You know, with abortion rights, it's going to be, okay, are we going to be, are we going to be creating underground railroads? Sort of what we did with the, the, the Haitian immigrants who were caught at Guantanamo is we created an underground railroad which brought them to the United States, which brought them into New York and housed them. Um, there's, there's a lot of different, I guess what I'm trying to say, is when there's all this stuff happening, there's not one answer. Right. What made Acts Up successful was because we had many different strategies. And I think by highlighting you know, those in the book, you know, my hope is that, oh, this makes sense to me for this. Oh, this makes sense to me. This sounds like something that's happening now. And they did this. Oh, now we would do, you know, now you would do an action so it would go viral, right? I mean, yeah, I think exactly. you know, some of our actions would clearly go well, viral. I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking about the one thing where, because you have in the book, um, uh, one of the protests at the UN that you guys got, sheltered off to this park. There was nobody on the street. You were, you, you talked about how you were shouting down the street at nobody. Um, and today, you know, there was, there would be cell phones out. You'd be taping it. It turned into TikTok videos, you know, and go viral, even though still nobody was on the street at the time, you know? So there's, I mean, that's actually one of Act Up's things also is that we were, we came around just as the camcorder did. So we had, not quite at that action, but soon thereafter, we had video cameras, people filming our own video crews, filming our actions and our demonstrations because we weren't sure it was going to get into the news, but we needed to keep track of it. We needed to be able to, you know, put it out there in the world. And that's what people do now with their cell phones. Right. You know, it's what yeah, also exactly. was to protect us from the police. It was, you know, so, so there's a lot of... I, sorry, go on. Yeah, but yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, there's so much here and... We're down to our last five minutes, and I, we want to get this part in. Definitely, is when does the book come out, and how will people be able to get it? Ah, uh, the book comes out September sixth, right after Labor Day, um, and it's already available for pre-sale on all the usual suspects uh, from you know the from you know Amazon and Barnes and Noble through uh, local bookstores. Uh, I'm hoping to. The whole point of the book for me 
is to get this history out. Uh, and mm-hmm. that also is, is now fraught, right? Because we're going to be banning books with gay content. But it's really important. Um, this is for uh, young people, young queers particularly. It's so important to know your history. And that's what they want to take away from us. Because you have to know where you came from. And this kind of history is not passed down at the dinner table, unless you have gay parents, maybe. Um, you know, this isn't, you know, the history I learned in my Hebrew school about the Holocaust. You know, this isn't, you know, where do you find this history? And yet people without history are, are you know, are without foundation. They're kind of adrift. And right. it's important to learn about heroes. It's important to learn about strategies and what came before you so you understand the struggles. Because when they show up again, because they do, you, you are, are. Prepared. you're better prepared. Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah, no, no, totally, totally. So, yeah, and uh, I don't know, maybe if you get banned, you'll go to the top of the New York Times bestseller list, though. Because it seems to be working go. that or, way as well. Or, or so, get a review in well, the Times. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, well, I know. Well, well, we'll get you out there. We'll get you in Florida so they ban you, and then we can. Uh, uh, then everybody Absolutely. will be able to read it. So um, and seriously, fun, if people here. I mean, I'm into going to schools. I'm very much into talking at universities, at colleges, at at high schools. I'm. That's what I want to do. So, if anyone listening is interested, by all means. Yeah, and how do they find yeah. you? Um, Ah, they can find me at, um, uh, I have a, a website, which is uh, www.boywiththebullhorn.com. Uh, that, and they, or they can email me at ron at boywiththebullhorn.com. Perfect. Well, Ron, thank you so much for so much. Thank you for <laughs> your work, your legacy, um, writing the book, um, everything you're doing now. I mean, it's all important, amazing, and, um, and and I agree with you. This history has to be known, understood, and learned from, and there's a lot that I think current activists should be inspired by and um, should take note of. Um, and I'm afraid that is all the time we have for today. Um, so, Ron, again, thank you for, for coming on with us today. I want to thank Brody for his work and uh, for his work not only on the show, but also on the Los Angeles Blade magazine. You can find that at losangelesblade.com. Every day, new stories about what is going on in the LGBTQ community, not just in L.A., but worldwide. Um, and we'll be back again next week with another installment of Rated LGBT Radio. Um, and I am not quite sure what we're having, but I know it's going to be a fabulous show because that is what we want to bring to you every single week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Tell your friends. And that's it for us for now. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. Radio.